Welcome to the Mind Meets Body podcast, a space dedicated to real health conversations with a dose of self-compassion, curiosity, and imperfection. Join me, Maria Sosa of Holistically Grace, as we take a deep dive into redefining and exploring health through the mind and body. On today's show, I am honored to be joined by Evelyn Triboli, who has deeply and personally changed my life. And I'll tell you guys a little bit about that story. But a little bit more on Evelyn. She's an award-winning registered dietitian with a nutrition counseling practice in Newport Beach, California. She was the nutrition expert for Good Morning America, a national spokesperson for the American Dietitian Association, contributing editor to Shape Magazine, has appeared on CNN, People Magazine, and most importantly for me and for us all who have followed her on this journey, she is one of the authors and um, creators of the Intuitive Eating book and movement. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So for those of us that don't know anything about intuitive eating, we'd love to get the official take on what is intuitive eating and what is it not. Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny. I define it so many different ways depending on who I'm talking to, you know, so I'll start kind of general and then I'll get specific as you want to. And I will tell you this, a little bit of background. Elise and I came up with this process in the book back in, well, the book was published in 1995. And so we can say it was research inspired. We were very frustrated in terms of how we were working as traditional dietitians. It wasn't working. It didn't feel good. We thought there's got to be another way to connect with our bodies and went into the research, looked at what was going on in um, the consumer world and came up with these these 10 uh, guiding principles. And and so basically what intuitive eating is, it's about you being the expert of your body, you know. And so what this journey is, is basically we're like tour guides and we're pointing out these things to help you reconnect with your body because there's been such a disconnection. So one way of looking at intuitive eating, it's a self-care eating framework. It's very personal, only you know your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences, and what your needs are. And so it becomes incredibly empowering. It's putting you front and center in charge of of what is going on. And to this day, we have now over 125 research, uh, 125 studies on our work showing benefit, which I find just incredibly hopeful. We need a lot more research um, coming online, but it's it's basically a kind of a mind-body thing that in, in which we have which we have 10 principles to help you help you re- reconnect. Or as when I'm working with teenagers, they they like to say, you know, you can't be the boss of me. I can only be the boss of me. <laughs> So that's kind of a generality of intuitive eating. Yeah. I love that. And what are some of those principles? Well, you know, the first one is, is really, really important. I have to often remind people of it. And that is the first principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. And that includes, you know, diet culture. And what's happening is because intuitive eating really has, is evolving into of movement. It's gotten really quite popular. It's been co-opted often by diet culture. There have been diet companies, um, using the word intuitive eating. And so people get confused. So I, I actually just did a post on how to spot fake intuitive eating. And so one of the things I just say, if it has any kind of diet culture or dieting or shrinking the body or counting anything, that is not intuitive eating. They're just using our languaging because it's it's popular. And that in of itself takes a lot of work. So rejecting the diet mentality. You know, honoring your hunger sounds pretty straightforward, except hunger has been demonized in our culture. And so 
it's about, you know, at the core, intuitive eating is about authenticity. What are you actually feeling? You know, are you hungry? And if you're hungry, then let's, let's nourish your body. Let's not fake it out. But I have patients that get really terrified of, of hunger and they, they put it off. And as a result, they get hungrier and it's very intense and urgent and it scares them. They go, oh my God, see, I need rules around my eating. It's like, no, you don't. Uh, making peace with food. And this is really a psychological principle. And this is about that there's no morality with eating. And absolutely, yes, there is a nutritional difference between eating a green apple versus a slice of apple pie. But this is about your emotional health, that you're not good or bad based on what you eat. And there's this paradox of freedom and a permission that happens when you know you can really eat the food again. It's like, well, if I can have it whenever I want to, do I really want it now? And if I eat it now, does it, it do, do, I, do I want it? And is it tasting good? And does it feel good in my body? All these things open up. And something Elise and I were seeing a lot of is this phenomenon of last supper eating. And that is, I'm never, ever, ever going to have, and you fill in the blank, whatever the forbidden food is, you know, these cookies again. So I better get it now while I can, uh, because I'm never, and they really believe they're never going to have it again. And it leads to this, you know, saying farewell to food feast. Then there's challenging the food police. And that's just about the, the rules in your mind you know and I often like to ask the question how do you decide what you're going to eat what rules do you have I used to have to explain what rules were but people now what they know what they are now because it's so prevalent and it's fascinating well, where do they come from and sometimes they've just been internalized by your family of origin or maybe all the different diets and food plants you've gone on to and by the way I have a lot of patients these days who don't even relate to the term, oh, I'm not a dieter. I just follow keto lifestyle. And it's like, what? <laughs> uh, that's a diet. But, it, but whatever language that we call it, that's actually disconnecting you. And so looking at these rules, and one of the ways you can tell if you might have a rule or belief system is if you feel guilty about eating something, that might suggest that, well, where did that come from? Because guilt is a feeling that's based on breaking a moral code. You know, did you, did you kill the chef or did you kill the farmer? And if the answer is no, it's like, oh, maybe there's a rule or belief that we need to take a look at. Then the, the fifth principle is discovering satisfaction. And this is really the hub of intuitive eating. It's one of my favorite places to start. You can start wherever you want to with these principles. You don't have to go in a set order. Uh, it's very, it's very personal. Because what does what does satisfaction feel like to you? What would be a satisfying meal? What kind of foods? What kind of texture? What kind of flavor and temperature? And I've had patients say, I don't know, <laughs> you know. And so it's a great way to start because ultimately, it's not satisfying to undereat. Ultimately, it's not satisfying to eat in a way that doesn't feel good in terms of quantities and so on. Uh, then the sixth principle is is feeling your fullness, and fullness is a natural body cue. Uh, I have patients who are terrified of, of fullness. And as I had a patient who said uh, he thought he was a compulsive eater. And what he realized is he was compulsively hungry. And mm. because he was terrified of fullness, he would always stop until the hunger just went away. And so he was chronically thinking about food and, and hungry. Then the seventh feeling, uh, the seventh feeling, <laughs> the seventh <laughs> principle is coping with your feelings with kindness. And this is new wording that's coming out uh, in the, in our fourth edition of intuitive eating. And it used to say cope with your feelings without food. And honestly, at least I didn't have a problem with the content and the core aspect of the principle. The challenge, however, is diet culture has really pathologized this idea of, of self-soothing eating or coping with your feelings. And uh, that's a problem. So we thought, let's change the language and that let's cope with your feelings with kindness. And maybe the kindest thing is to have uh, some cookies and, and milk. Or maybe the kindest thing is, oh my God, I need to give myself permission to take a break, to take a time out. 
So that's what that's about. And I've had a lot of patients who believe that they are emotional eaters or that they are binge eating. Uh, when it turns out, you know what, what's going on is they're having a compensatory response to under eating and they might have stress going on and under eating and, the, and it's actually the under eating that's driving the eating. So the eighth principle is about respecting your body. And this is that idea that all bodies are worthy of dignity and respect. It doesn't matter what your size, your gender, your race is. We need respect and dignity for everybody and access to health care. Uh, the ninth and 10th principles are a little straightforward. Uh, and that the ninth is about movement, moving your body in ways that feel good. And the 10th is on your health with gentle nutrition. And so the thing I want to stress with intuitive eating is sometimes people like to cherry pick it and say, oh, intuitive eating is just this. It's just eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. And that's really a reductive, a uh, very simplified version of intuitive eating. There's so much more to that. These are not rules. I've had some people go, oh, it's free for all, eat whatever you want, who cares? And when they're talking about making peace with food, but it's actually a dynamic integration of all 10, which includes gentle nutrition. But the thing I caution people with is um, we need, this is about really cultivating and having a healthy relationship with food, mind, or body. And if that's not in place, we need to make that in place before we start looking at nutrition, because a lot of people have been traumatized by, by diet culture. So that's a quick summary. That was <laughs> a, a great summary. No, that was okay. a great one. <laughs> so <laughs> as I was listening to that, the, the thing that kept popping on my head was this idea of restriction, right? And this idea of yeah. how we constantly restrict ourselves from eating these quote unquote unhealthy foods. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the science or the psychology of restriction and how it sounds useful to diet culture to restrict these things and to play on this idea of willpower and strength to refrain from eating these things. But what does it actually look like in practice? And how does that harm us and ultimately, you know, inform this idea that diets just, they're, they're not useful and they don't work in the long term or, or at all? Yeah, so that's, that's actually two very, very questions. Let's, let's start with the fact that diets don't work because that shocks people mm -hmm. or they think, well, it's just the fad dieting or I'm a health professional, so I can do it properly in a lifestyle way. But what's important to recognize, there's a body of research that shows that restricting your eating for the purpose of weight loss, not only does it not work for the vast majority of people, it causes harm. And every time I talk about this, especially with health professionals, they're like, what? What do you mean a body of research? And I'll go boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, let's start with you reading the research first and see for yourself. But what we, what would I, what I go up against with this and what health professionals go through, especially and consumers as well, but especially health professionals who've been trained in the medical model is there's this disbelief. Well, that's not what we were taught and that's not what we believe. And so even when we give all of these facts, it still doesn't set well. So it's really common for people to go through this phase of cognitive dissonance that it doesn't, doesn't sound right until you start reading all the data. That one of the fastest predictors of weight gain is to go on a diet, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with gaining weight. But what ends up happening is, is with all of this, this dieting and this, this um, encouragement of dieting now by healthcare, which didn't used to be the case, it creates problems. It creates a uh, weight stigma. It perpetuates fat phobia. It increases weight cycling. And by the way, weight cycling and weight stigma all by itself 
cause a lot of the problems that have been associated, keyword associated uh, with, with higher weight bodies. And when you start looking at the research behind that, that's a whole other rabbit hole also that doesn't pan out as well. So this idea that, you know, we, we, right now eating disorders have doubled in the last time period that they've been looked at. Worldwide, they have doubled. They looked at 90 studies and found this. So the fact that it increases the risk of eating disorders, one out of uh, four dieters will, will get into some kind of eating disorder behavior. We can actually argue that uh, dieting is an eating disorder behavior, the way dieting is, is now in our, in our culture. So it causes harm. And so I have, so to some people I say, they'll say, well, my doctor said I have to lose weight. And that feels hard. How can my doctor be wrong? And I'll say, well, here's how. <laughs> Doctors are really busy and weight science is quite complex. And when you keep reading all the research, it's very, very clear. In fact, a paper just came out in Nature talking about this very thing, that weight science is so, our body weights are so regulated with precision beyond our control that there's this big, deeply rooted belief that all you have to do is, you know, eat less and exercise more. And that's not true. It's not true. A body of research shows that. Um, but what doctors do, because they, they have to read all kinds of stuff, they don't have time for this. So they follow the policies of their institutions. So back in 2013 in the United States, the American Medical Association overruled its science committee. The science committee asked the question, can we consider weight the size of someone's body a disease? And they said, no, not enough data to support that. And the American Medical Association said, we don't like that answer. We're going to take it to a vote. And they outvoted them, became political. And with the politics came money. You know, now there's all these insurance requirements and so on. So even if, if weight was an issue, the second issue is there's no data that shows that you can effectively change someone's body weight. It, and it actually a really good study, very small study that came out on The Biggest Loser showed that these contestants six years after the fact had lower metabolic rates by about five to 700 calories, depending how you look at their data. They had less muscle mass, lean muscle tissue than when they began that horrible show. Uh, and it, it caused all these types of problems. So why would we prescribe something that only, that only doesn't work? It actually causes the opposite to happen. Would you prescribe a drug that has a 95% failure rate and causes harm. If weight loss was a drug, it would never be approved of. And so we have a lot of work to do uh, around all these uh, belief systems. So when someone says, you know, my doctor said, I understand the conflict there, but you have to read the research. And one way I look at this and your listeners can be kind of looking at this and maybe they're going, oh, I don't know about this, is look at your own experience. What has your own experience been with any kind of food restrictive plan that you've gone on by whatever name they call it? What has your body done in response to this? And I started asking these questions on a really deep level because I was so curious that my patients would come in, new patients, I'd get their history and they'd have this perception, oh, this diet really worked. And I'm like, really? Look what happened. You know, you have food preoccupation, loss of control eating, all these other kinds of things, and you had rebound weight gain. I don't say that that bluntly, but when we start looking at the real history, what they remember is that brief time where the weight went off. And by the way, that that we, there, no one's questioning that you can lose weight temporarily. It's the fact, you know, it's like getting a haircut. You cut your hair off and it's going to grow back. Everybody knows that. No one shames you because your hair grew back. It's something that we 
um, accept as part of the process. And so when you look at what your own experience has been, what does your body show you? What's your body history? What's your body story? And these stories, I tell you, break my heart, especially when someone's had a history of dieting at a young age, that maybe their parents put them on a diet. And I'm not here to shame or blame parents. They're doing the best they can. And sometimes this is under the direction of a, of a doctor. Uh, and they're given this powerful message. You can't be trusted with eating. And then this kid gets hungry. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to sneak eat. And they're going to sneak the food they're not allowed to have if they can find it. This is the kid that gets excited at the party. It's like, oh my God, I get to have this food. And there's a lot of guilt involved with that. And they have this message that there's something wrong with me. It's like, no, your body is not broken. You are not broken. It is the system that is the problem. We need to change the system. So what I find is if you can look at your own history with dieting uh, or food plans of sorts, that tells a really big tale. And then I will say to that, you know, your experience matches what we see in the research over and over and over again. And the health professionals that come into this work, they've either come in through their own body story where they've had that experience, um, or they also come in because now they've had some experience working with people and it doesn't feel good. This process isn't working and they're in this place of cognitive dissonance and they want to do a new way. And that's what I'm here to tell you. There's a different way that you can do this because this harms relationships. I've been talking about some of the medical side effects, but when you're constantly preoccupied and worried about your body and worried about your eating, you're missing out on life. It's taking up brain space. The, the stories I hear from people, how much they wasted in their, in their lives. I have a patient I was seeing whose husband's like, oh my God, I got to write her a thank you letter. I got my wife back because they would postpone vacations and reschedule outings based on whatever diet she was on. And so there's a path to liberation here and, and, and it's, it's through intuitive eating. That's my story, essentially. Ah! And that's why, you know, one of the things that, um, why this interview and why it's so amazing to talk to you, it's because my story was that. It was this idea of everything was built around my food. Everything was built around restriction. I was mm -hmm. doing cleanses continuously. So it was, you know, smoothies in the morning, a solid meal for lunch, and then smoothies at night. And that was repetitive. And that's what I thought health was. And that's what my whole life depended on. And I would take little pouches of protein with me to parties because I couldn't oh. trust the food that was there. Yes. Wow. And wow. meanwhile, I was having all these digestive problems, which didn't make sense because if I'm eating the greenest and leanest food, my, di my digestion should be fine. It's just digestion, right? Mm. And what I came to find is that I was so preoccupied with food, so stressed out about eating unhealthy food that my body was in a constant state of stress regarding food and that stress got turned into digestive problems and within a month of intuitive eating everything just kind of went away naturally on its own kind of listening to my body and letting go of that diet mentality and applying all the concepts it was just I thought I was going to have digestive problems for the rest of my life. Essentially wow. it was, this is my life and this is how I have to live. And then intuitive eating came into my life and it was like, no, you've been living a lie. <laughs> you don't it's, have it's this. shocking because you're deconstructing your own belief system, but it's yeah. through this, your suffering mm -hmm. that you start looking at, there's got to be another way. And I think that's what a lot of people don't, don't um, realize that this act of food restriction, even though it's in the name of health, and I've seen that so many times, this is not, I'm going to be really clear. This is not about shaming people who's gone down the rabbit, down the rabbit hole of trying to eat healthy. And it got into this big old 
mess. I haven't met a person yet who hasn't got into this problem that they didn't have good intentions around this. And what happens is because the body is so smart, it's like, we're not getting enough to eat here. We're going to slow down digestion. And then, yeah, when you're in a stress state, when you're either in a, you know, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, your body is getting ready to, to survive. And it's not, it's not convenient to digest. So that's also part of the healing story. And I'll tell you one of the things that just, it kills me is when you see these influencers in social media, putting up all these rigid, pure ways of eating so holy and so, oh my gosh, you want to just be like that person. And then three years later, it's like, oops, I had an eating disorder, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, that scares me a lot because when you start looking at eating disorders themselves, one of the qualities of it, there's profound self-absorption around eating. You know, and that's what I hear a lot with diet culture. When someone's really into something, they want to tell you all about it. And by the way, I'm fine with that in the office. I want to know everything about why you're doing what you're doing and so on. But to the point when you're out socially with people and that's all someone can talk about it, as opposed to, oh my God, we've got a pandemic going on or what's going on with the economy or your health or your life. There's so many much more things to be interested in, but this is a sign of, of, of a problem when, there, when it becomes obsession. And there's a classic study, I know you're familiar with it, but if I can just share it for just a bit, you know, there was a study done on, uh, college-age men during World War II, conscientious objectors. And the whole purpose of the study was to see what can we do to avert malnutrition because there were food shortages and all kinds of things going on during World War II. So they took these healthy men, healthy biologically and psychologically, put them on a semi-starvation diet, and they also exercised. And what happened to their minds blew me away. And I've got the actual original study. It's two volumes. It's a, a couple thousand pages. And I know one of the volumes. Let's see, this one is just. I'm showing you. I'm showing you on the screen. Uh, is this the one? Yeah, this is the one that, that focuses on the on the psychology, the biology of human starvation. And then here's the other one. See how big they are? It's like, oh my yes. god. Yes. Um, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that got me when you start reading about the individual men, you know, subject 22, subject 21. Uh, was about uh, was happening to their mind. You know, some of them couldn't stop thinking about eating, couldn't stop talking about food. In fact, one guy complained and said, I'm so sick of the nutrition masturbation. <laughs> the researcher actually wrote that. It's in the study. I thought, wow, that is such an apt term for today, you know? Yes. But some of the men developed eating disorders. One man went out and stole candy and binged on it and felt so guilty he made himself throw up. Another man went out and binged on milkshakes and felt so guilty he made himself throw up. So that's our first classic study on the impact of food restriction. And by the way, these guys weren't starving. They were eating a fair amount of food. Uh, it was certainly considered a, a semi-starvation, but to have this impact, so we've known this for over a hundred years. And I'll tell you what, when I'm talking about this study, when I'm giving talks to universities, university students, and I tell them one of the things that happened, they always gasp. They go, oh, and I'll say these college age men lost interest in sex. And they go, oh, now they knew this is messed up. <laughs> this is wrong. That'll send them. That'll send them. And that'll make it under understandable for everybody. <laughs> yeah. But what happens because right now diet culture is so loud. 
um, people don't talk about the, the aftermath, like what you were happening. People don't go up and brag on Instagram like, hey, my God, I got digestive problems and here's what's going on. Or, oh my gosh, I can't stop thinking about food. Or, oh my gosh, I can't stop. I have loss of control eating. Once I start, I can't stop. They think there's something wrong with them when actually it's the body thinking you're trying to starve it and it's just trying to survive. And what happens is, is, is diet culture ends up demonizing that process. Oh my God, you must have food addiction. Oh my gosh, you must have binge eating disorder. When actually... It's a natural compensatory response. And one of my favorite metaphors for this, I think because I live near the ocean, Pacific Ocean, is, you know, when you go into the waves and a big set comes, you, 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 you go underneath the waves and you hold your breath until they pass by, then you come back up for air. And sometimes you're gasping. And in that panicky gasp, when you finally come up, it's this big, oh, giant inhale. And no one says, oh my God, you are binge breathing. Oh my mm -hmm. God, you're addicted to air. Uh, because people know that's a natural compensatory response. And we really need that perspective with, with eating that when you've been on food restriction, no matter how pure your intention is, I'm just trying to be healthy. Um, these things actually happen. These are signs and symptoms that your body has not been getting enough food. There's nothing wrong with you. This is not addiction. But someone might think that's the only thing that could possibly explain it because the last thing they'd want to do is to go through a whole bag of cookies or chips and yet these things happen because the little cells are saying, you're trying to kill me, you're trying to kill me. We get to eat a potato chip. We're going for the whole bag. Come on. And it becomes this big old thing. But as you describe in your own experience, it's amazing how fast the process can heal. I shouldn't say the word fast because that, 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 might give the expectation this is fast. It's not a fast journey at all. It was for me, but it's, it's the other component is lifelong. It's something that you literally have to check in with yourself every single day. The actual physiological symptoms went away and then I had to deal with everything else, the emotional aspects of, you know, dealing with a different body and kind of seeing yes. it shift and change. So it's definitely not fast and it's definitely something that you continue to work on on a, on a daily basis, I think. Yeah, but just know that healing is possible. Yes. There's, there's another way, yes. you know, and I, I tell you, I just, I get a lot, Elise and I both get a lot of unsolicited email and DMs. In the old days, we used to get letters, not so much of those anymore, <laughs> but saying this has been life-changing. You've changed my mm -hmm. life. And what I like to say is you changed your life. We, we gave you a map. We, you know, suggested some ways that you can reconnect with your body, but you changed. You, you had the courage to, to go through the process. And I think what happens is, you you know, when you start reconnecting, you're starting to heal the trust in your body. Uh, every time you honor hunger with a bite of food, that's an act of healing. And what happens in time as you start reconnecting and, and start trusting yourself, you start trusting yourself in other areas of life, which is why I think it feels life-changing. It's not just that you're, you're eating change. You suddenly have your brain space back. You suddenly have the energy to put into passion projects that before it's just like, oh, I can't. You know, your life, you get your life back. It's profound. Yeah, one of the things that I found most impactful is this idea of reconnecting with my body and this idea of I'm not just these thoughts or I'm not, you know, I had disconnected yeah. with, from myself for so long and kind of lost this idea of self-expertise, of intuition, of inner wisdom that I outsourced everything to an expert. So it was like, you tell me how to eat, you tell me how to feel, you tell me how to live my life. And intuitive eating started not just a change in the way that I ate, but in the way that I moved through the world and started yeah. trusting myself and exactly. to, to lead the life that I wanted in that truth, you know? So it's, it's very deep. It's not just food, definitely not just the food. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really, really profound. And just being able to start holding your body and, you, and your, your whole humanity with unconditional positive regard. Yeah. You are not your body. You are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. You have a body. You have thoughts. You have feelings. But unfortunately, especially for women, we have been so indoctrinated in our identity as being a body. And there's a mantra I love by the, the folks at Beauty Redefined, where they yeah. say, your body is not uh, an ornament. It's an instrument. We're not here for the male gaze. And when you look at a book, there's a book that really impacted me that came out last year by the author and the academic uh, Sabrina Strings. It's called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Roots of Fat Phobia. And she deconstructs how long this has been here. It's been way before uh, healthcare. It, you know, it's rooted in racism and, and patriarchy and all kinds of things. And it's uh, shocking and not shocking at the same time. But when I share that with my patients, I'll say, you know, it's understandable then why this takes a while to let go of your identity, this idea that you need to perform to have worthiness, the idea that you need to look or be a certain way for this, you know? So it's, it's a book I highly recommend reading. It's uh, profound. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. Um, so you mentioned something as you were talking about addiction that kind of sparked this idea that we talk a lot about in, you know, pop nutrition. And it's this idea of addiction to sugar. I'd yeah. love to get your take on that and how we can start to deconstruct that and kind of give everybody a different take on that. Idea. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, it, it really breaks my heart, the amount of fear mongering that goes on. And I want to be really clear, I'm not questioning someone's experience and it feels that way. This loss of control is profound. I've heard so many stories. And when we start looking at the research, I think what's really important to understand is where this research came from. It came out of uh, the field, you know, looking at weight science that's fraught with a lot of weight stigma, first of all, to begin with. And the study that really got people's attention was the one that was done on rats uh, out of Princeton. They took uh, two groups of rats and they were able to create so-called addiction uh, in one group of rats on sugar where they just couldn't stop eating sugar and it made headline news and that's what got people really interested and by the way i'm, I'm fascinated with uh neuroscience to begin with so i was fascinated on on that study but the part that was actually more fascinating these rats that couldn't stop eating sugar is their control group of rats who when given sugar it's like okay no biggie. <laughs> and they went on their, 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 their merry way of doing their rat things that they do. And so why was that? You know, well, it turns out the group that had this loss of control with sugar, they had food restriction. The only way they can get this model to keep uh, performing like this is if they restrict them with, with their eating. And so what we can say is if somebody restricts their eating, it sets into some places, it sets into place this pathway of making food more reward, uh, more rewarding on so many levels in, in the interest of survival, both uh, there's a biological cascade that happens in a psychological cascade. This has never been shown in humans. And I must really say that never been shown in humans. There's inter interesting conjecture studies where they'll put somebody in a brain scan and they'll say, oh my God, this lights up the addiction pathway, the pathways that you see that are, um, 
uh, that are indicated in substances of abuse. And what we have to remember is food's supposed to light up our reward pathway. Food is supposed to be pleasurable. The things that, are, that we need for survival are supposed to be pleasurable. So that's mating and eating. If we didn't have those two things, we wouldn't be here today. So thank God, <laughs> you know, they're both uh, pleasurable. And so it's not, it's not addiction. And when you look at other studies, like they've had studies where they take um, um, new moms and they give them pictures of their smiling babies and do a brain scan. And same thing happens. The reward area lights up in their brain, but no one's saying, oh my God, these moms are addicted to their babies. And so part of the problem that happens, I think that's really perpetuating this theory, I think is the best thing that we can call it, food addiction theory, is a group of researchers out of Yale decided to look at the criteria for substance abuse uh, back in 2009 and said, well, let's, let's see if we can apply that to food, what that would be like. And they created this food addiction scale, the Yale food addiction scale. So when you hear Yale, you think, oh, that's Ivy League or something to it. And I'll never forget when the study came out, I looked at it and I go, how did they get this significance in these Ivy League privileged kids that, ooh, I forget the number now, it might have been like 10%, 12% had food addiction. How does that happen? And it wasn't until I got a hold of the actual survey and I read the survey, all the questions, I go, oh, this makes so much sense. They were capturing something, calling it the wrong thing. They were capturing the impact of dieting. You know, are you constantly thinking about food? Do you ever feel guilty based on what you eat? And I thought, yeah, if you take a look at the dieting statistics, about half the people are dieting, so it might make sense that you're getting this. So I think they they picked up on something and they're calling it the wrong thing. And there's been a lot of these uh, Yale food addiction studies. There's They've actually updated it to the... Yale Food Addiction Scale 2, and it's been highly criticized that it's a proxy for other things. It's a proxy for an eating disorder. It's a proxy for trauma. And I, I, if I would put in my two cents on this, I'd say it's a proxy for dieting. And what it does, it adds fear-mongering. That's my concern about this. It adds all to fear-mongering. People don't trust themselves. And I had the privilege of actually debating a um, sugar addiction scientist, a neuroscientist mm. who was actually involved in that rat study. And to get ready for that, I thought, I want to I wanna get personal. And I thought, I know my experiences with patients that they think they're addicted. And then we go through this process of intuitive eating and they realize that they're not. But I thought that's too convenient to have my own you know, cases. So I, I did a post on Instagram where I did this big question. Did you ever think you were addicted to food of some sort and then realized you weren't? Oh my God, the comments that came in where people were describing, yeah, I really thought I was addicted. I really, really did. And then I realized uh, I wasn't getting enough to eat. And once I started eating enough, then this issue I had, well, it was two things, not just not getting enough to eat, but there's the psychological component we haven't talked about. And that is when you think you're never going to have this food again, it becomes something that's more you, you focus on. There's been a lot of research on this, the forbidden fruit phenomenon. Um, so once they started eating more and then allowing this food back in, they no longer had this issue. And so I think that's helpful to take a look at that. If, if someone in your audience right now is thinking, well, I think I am addicted. It's like, well, there's a lot of people that have that belief. The intensity and the discomfort around all that is real. But see, what we call it is important because how we treat it would be different. And then getting at the root to prevent it would be different, you know? So that's my long answer. <laughs> so it, it's troubling when we, when we, when we're putting all these labels and, you know, it's why I think we need to get back to the, the pleasure of eating, 
and mm. connection and, and not apologizing because you're hungry, not apologizing because oh, I'm in the mood for dessert with this meal or I'm just in the mood for dessert right now. Then what if we sat down and had a meal and we just connected and enjoyed each other company and enjoyed the taste of food? What would that be like? And not hearing about everyone's new latest, greatest diet, you know? Oh, I can't stand that every time we go over to somebody's house and there's a diet and I'm just like, I'm going to go somewhere else. I just, I can't. It's so exhausting after you realize how much of your conversations, socially speaking, are dependent or the foundation is talking about food and talking about the diet that you're on. It's, it's insane. Well, and you know, it's interesting that you say that because what I, what I usually, and I'll ask you this too, I'll put you mm -hmm. on the spot if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. My patients <laughs> describe it and I'll say that's, what do you do? And what they do is nothing. They suffer in silence and I'll say, well, gosh, so your grandma who's on this new latest greatest diet, they don't know how that talk is impacting you. And you've described this great relationship and love and affection. I can't help but wonder if she knew the impact, if maybe at least around you, she wouldn't talk about that. So did you find that that was true for you? That often you oh, say I, I go through cycles. So at some points, like I'm very angry because like, I think this, you know, learning about intuitive eating and all the things from a social construct kind of like light this fire in your belly where it's just like, ah, I have to share this because it's so, you know, unfair that we are being taught all these lies. So it comes from like a really angry place sometimes. And I'm like, okay, now yeah. I gotta tone it down. And then I kind of shut down because I feel like everybody's so tired of me saying all these things and constantly fighting against diet culture that it's it's been hard for me to find a middle ground of yeah sharing my knowledge and sharing, you know, kind of like the research and then also maintaining relationships. It's hard, Evelyn. It's really hard to go against the grain. Well, and that's a really good point. And so if I may offer up a couple of ideas yes, on please. this, um, you know, one of the things I'm a really big advocate for is having proactive boundaries. And it might be like this, like maybe you have a certain set of friends that that's all they talk about. Maybe that's how you became friends. And it might be through an email. It might be through a, a, a text or even a phone conversation. Like, hey, do you think uh, when we get together that we could not talk about diets or bodies? Just in other words, not even not even getting into your own thing. Have you heard about intuitive eating? Because I also think that people don't, they're not, if they're not ready to hear the message, they don't want to hear it either. And by the way, I'm very happy to talk about it if people want to, but I, I would rather be invited in to the conversation. So that that doesn't keep spinning your wheels in this, this energy. Uh, and if you felt comfortable being personal, it could be say, you know, I'm really working on healing my relationship with food or with my body or with my eating. I would really love it if we cannot talk about any of these things when we get together. Can you guys, are you guys okay with that? And what I usually recommend besides this proactive request is if, if usually when you're talking about friends, the answer will be yes, usually. Hmm. Not necessarily with families, that's a whole other story. But if the answer is yes, then my, my, my thing is you need to follow it up uh, in that same conversation thread of how are you going to maintain that boundary? Because they're going to forget. They're used to talking about it all the time. And so then you might ask, you know, okay, great. Thank you. That's so cool. Um, in case you guys forget, how can I, how can I politely remind you all without making it a thing? You know, we just make it really casual. If you do it now, it's not a deal. If you wait till the brownie gets broken, then maybe you're pissed off. Like, oh my God, I went out of my way. And they said, yes. And now here they are. They totally disregarded me. When actually what I see happens the great majority of the time when someone says yes, they actually mean it. They just totally forget. And so it might be something as simple. You don't have to get on your soapbox and be all righteous. You can put your hand up like a stop sign. Oh, remember, we're not going to go there. They're, oh, yeah, 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 my bad. And then boom, you move on, you know. 
that's that's one way of of handling it but you know i have some patients i work with they're just not there they don't have the energy they don't have the bandwidth and that's okay so can we start with just keeping you safe that if the conversation happens maybe you change the conversation or if you don't even have the energy to change the conversation maybe you pretend you got a you got a message you have to respond to privately everyone's got their phone on them that's or you or you, or you politely leave by going to the bathroom people generally know how to make polite uh escapes so can't what's your exit strategy that's a, a thing I, I like to look at and then with those who are close and personal then you can invite them in you know it's like hey you know i've i've, I've found it i'm really if someone notices gosh you really seem you're so much more relaxed you're not as as uh whatever they might say anxious or whatever <laughs> what's going on and you can say you know i'd love to share it with you if you want to know and if you don't i'm okay with that too and then then you talk about that 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 process because you have a an open invitation so sometimes just by your own modeling of your being that god you're when i'm with you now you're 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 here before, you know, half the time it felt like your body was here, but your mind wasn't. And now you're 100% here, and I, and I love that. What, what are you doing? You know, it, that, that's kind of cool. So those are some ways to do it. But then I will also say, if you have platforms like on social media, I, that's, I'm there to, to educate. I'm not there to shame anyone because everyone is, comes from a place where they didn't know. They're doing the best they can, and then they find out otherwise. But I, that's a good place to do that, too. And I would love to see this community standard where we're not commenting on people's bodies. We're not denigrating people's bodies. We're not we're not uh, deifying food. We're actually connecting on a on a deeper level, or a level of humanity, or we're just sharing recipes because something really tastes good, not because it's going to cure you of something. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. what I'd love to see. Yeah. Definitely, I love that. So, in terms of those individuals that have, um, I don't know if we can. You know, there's a few things that we've talked about. You know, when we did our training regarding gluten and intolerances uh, and these physiological changes in their body, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how intuitive eating is compatible with these, yeah. um, and and how it all kind of relates because that's a big one. I think a lot of people are like, well, no, I can't because my body doesn't allow me to eat the things that I want because it will react this way or another. So I can't possibly try intuitive eating. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So first of all, we have to look at, you know, where, where this um, belief system has come from. And if we look at your own situation, for example, you were having these digestive issues and at the time really had the belief that I have to eat a certain way. And then your eyes got opened up. So I like to start with the more um, on the, on the, I guess, I don't want to use the word extreme, but on one end of the continuum, that's a better language. You know, like if you have a medical condition, so let's say you have celiac disease where you absolutely cannot eat gluten. That's part of the treatment. You know, just 20 parts per million is enough to cause harm. And my adult son was diagnosed with a celiac since he was a toddler. So it's something I, I know and we've, we've, we've lived with. There's no gray area with that. If you have a life-threatening allergy, then yeah, there's no gray area for that either. So everything else you know, we can still use the other principles of intuitive eating. We can still eat towards satisfaction. We can still honor our hunger. And what I find that with a lot of these issues that you're bringing up, a lot of them are under the guise of wellness, but it's really diet culture, you know? And so a question I like to ask, and I ask it really sincerely, is how do you know what you know? You know, you say you can't eat this, but what is this this based on? And you know, it's interesting when we look just at look at stress by itself. Stress all by itself, uh, without anything else, impacts our digestion, as you very well 
described. And so if you're undergoing a stressful time and you happen to change your diet and then the stress was relieved and you, and you ascribe it now to your diet because you cut out gluten, it actually might've been the stress, not the, not the actual gluten. So I'd be looking at this in terms of how is this affecting your quality of life? So the first universal answer is you can integrate medical nutrition therapy issues with intuitive eating, but where it gets, um, I don't know, I don't want to use the word slippery, but when people really think they eat and eat it, need to eat a certain way and it's coming from the rules of diet culture. So that's where it's helpful to step back and look at, well, wait a minute, is this really true? Is this really true for my body as well? Or is this kind of a belief system I kind of got swept up into? And you know, you were describing your desire for health and it sounded like, you know, pure clean eating. I've worked with a lot of people with that. Again, good, good intentions. And that's what's left them down the rabbit hole. There's nothing wrong if you, for valuing eating. I want to be really clear about that. But when we're in the healing process, we need to question all of this and then look at how is this way of eating impacting your quality of life? How is it impacting your relationships? What would it be like if I was a little more flexible with it? So that's what I'd be looking at, unless there's the absolutes like with celiac disease and, and allergies, you know? And I mean, I'm talking about bona fide allergies, not ones that are done by some of these questionable testing that are, that are going on through at home kits and so on. So looking at those kinds of things and how it's impacting your life. So does that, does that help a little bit? Mm, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. So I know that if I would have listened to this podcast, you know, before I began my cleansing and my clean eating uh, journeys for years, it would have been so helpful to kind of understand that there's so many other ways to be quote unquote healthy or to work towards health. So I'm in kind of like a closing, where should we kind of get started with intuitive eating if, if what we are listening to just really resonates with us and kind of lights this, you know, fire in our belly of, yeah, I need to change and I'm exhausted from dieting and this has only caused problems in my life. Where would we, um, where do we go from there? Yeah, you know, there's one thing I want to say, and I'll tell you where to go from there. Too. <laughs> we have to remember there's more to health than just what we eat. You know, yes, our emotional definitely. health is so important. And you, yeah, I know you know that. I just yeah. have to say it. Yes, no, thank um, you. Yeah, so if you want to. Yeah, if you want to dive deeper into the work, I might suggest if you want to really start practicing with the work, you can jump into the intuitive eating workbook. Um, we have the fourth edition of intuitive eating that's coming out uh, in June, June uh, 2020. And I tell you, I'm very excited about it because we've really updated it. We've uh, looked at issues around diet culture and weight stigma and all kinds of things. And also just updating all the research that's come out on intuitive eating. And what that does, it gives you a lot more depth and breadth on the history and the research of, of the intuitive eating process with a lot of case studies. So if you're someone who relates to stories and case studies, that might be a really good place to start. If you're somebody who really wants to take action, it might be the workbook. And the workbook stands by itself. You don't have to have the book to do the workbook, but it complements each other. You can follow me on Instagram. All I post pretty much is about intuitive eating. We also have a free online community, a peer-to-peer -peer support group, uh, intuitiveeatingcommunity.org. You can access it through our intuitive eating website. And then, you know, sometimes what happens is um, 
is maybe you're super scared and you're afraid to do this work alone is sometimes it's helpful to work with somebody who's been trained in our in our process and we have certified intuitive eating counselors there's over a thousand in 23 countries now so that's an option also so there's just all different types of ways i've had people who just read the book and that's all they needed and others who are like "Ooh, it looks like we have more complexity maybe working at an eating disorder and this stuff can sound really really scary and you need some support going through this process so those are some ways yeah, um, I'm, I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor and it's something that uh, when you talk about the workbook, it was this idea of like, okay, now I really, I can't just read about it. I really have to work into this yeah. for myself and the things that I'm experiencing and the things that you, and we talked about this in, in um, when we were doing the certification, is that you can only take others as deep as you have gone yourself. So if you are yeah. not willing to understand what your relationship with food is, if you're not able to see you know, weight stigma and fat phobia and how it shows up in, in your perception of health, then you know, it's really hard to be able to help somebody down that path. And I know that I said that was my last question, but this is my last question. <laughs> because I wanted to, you know, we, we talk a lot about intuitive eating, but I'd love to know about you and how your experience with diets and your experience with intuitive eating and and kind of the Evelyn in intuitive eating. If, oh if my gosh, the, <laughs> the backstory. You yeah. know, I told you the story professionally how we got got to intuitive eating. Yes. And with I have a weird story, but it's a story nonetheless. I used to be a really serious athlete, and I'm I go way back in the day where they didn't have girls track teams, so I ran on the boys team, and I always wanted to know what I can eat to run faster and beat the boy. So that's how I got interested in nutrition. Uh, I've, what makes me unusual, I've only been on one diet in my entire life and it was before I went to college because I was gonna be on the cross country team and I had got injured, my body had changed and I panicked about that. And I will never forget the obsessionality. When my, my son was born, uh, he was actually, uh, anyway, this, anyway, it was somewhere a long time ago. I had just started um, my debut on Good Morning America, and I will never forget. I thought about if I was ever, ever going to diet, this would be the time, you know. And I, I have so much uh, compassion for all these women that are getting all the pressure from diet culture about quote getting your body back. It's like holy moly, you just had a baby. I'm happy to tell you, I didn't diet, but I was greatly influenced by dieting because I had a dieting mom, and uh, it was really impactful in a very sad way. You know, when she was. 64, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I'll never forget this. It was just her and I, which is unusual because I've got three other siblings. And right before one of her big uh, surgeries, you know, we were talking deeply, you know, kind of past the tissues. And she stood up from the couch and did a 360 surveying her body. And she goes, God, all these years wasted on dieting. All I want to do is grow old. And she ended up dying, you know, she died three years later and I'll never forget that, you know, and wow. the way I was lucky is, is that she never uh, uh, put that on us, on us kids in terms of having us diet and all those, those types of things. So it's interesting for anyone to look back at your own legacy of bodies in terms of the dieting that's been in your family, the dieting that's been uh, in intergenerational grandparents, aunts, uncles, all that kind of stuff. And then you'll see, oh, there's a reason. So I, I'm, I'm a rare bird in that way. I've been really lucky uh, because of my athletic background. I always was, it's before diet culture was so pathological the way it is and in every everywhere but I always looked at my body in terms of function the boys and I at the end of the week we'd sit in a circle and we'd compare legs to see who had the most vascularization because that was a sign of fitness we weren't looking at size we we're looking at we were looking at 
the performance of our, our body, the function, we're appreciating our body. So that is really rare because the sad thing now is I work with a lot of athletes with eating disorders and because mm. diet culture has, has, has uh, inundated the athletic world, I'm sad to say. So yeah. yeah, I'm out to change the culture. I'm out to change the world. And I'm, I'm thrilled you're here to join us as a yes. certified and counselor. So yeah. Me too. So glad to be a part of this community. Well, Thank you for this podcast and for, you know, being on here, but thank you just for changing my life. I know like oh. that, that's, that's literally what you've changed everything for me and how in tune I am with myself, not just my food and my relationships and my emotions. Again, it's so much <sighs> more than just food. It, it is not just about the food. So thank you for you and, and Elise that of course she's not, you know, here to speak with us, but your work has impacted myself, has impacted so many of us and will continue to do that because it is so powerful. So thank you, Evelyn. Really appreciate you. you as a person and as a researcher, as a human, and really glad to have connected on here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So now you've liberated yourself and you're going to liberate yes. other people. So it's very gratifying to hear. Thank <laughs> that you for having me on your show. Yeah. That is it. Thank you for tuning in to the Mind Meets Body podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit the subscribe button below. If you're looking for more things Holistically Grace, check out my Instagram at Holistically Grace and my website, www.holisticallygrace.com. Please be mindful that the conversations found on the podcast are for educational purposes only. They're not meant to diagnose, treat, or replace the personalized care provided by a trained professional. In fact, it is my hope that these topics encourage you to reach out and seek help. No shame attached. Until next time, friends, stay compassionate.